You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kostoblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Rich, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. How are things down under in the nice summer warm weather? Hopefully. Yes, very good, Niels. Um, the occasional cyclone comes and visits us and um, it is uh, very balmy hot weather at the moment, so... Uh, the fans are all working overtime, but uh, it, it's quite pleasant down here. If you, if you want a touch of sun, come over and uh, visit us. Yes, well, we certainly would like some sun uh, at this uh, time of the year, but um, not sure I can quite make it to Australia right now. <laughs> Anyways, another time, I'm sure. Um, we do have a very full plate today, uh, to say the least, in terms of things that we haven't really talked about a lot, which I find it very interesting. Uh, you would think after all these episodes and conversation, you we would have covered everything. I think these topics that we found, and in particular you found, are actually a little bit different. So I'm excited about that. But before we get into all of this, I'm always curious, because there is usually a couple of months in between we speak, kind of what's been on your radar? What have you come across? Anything interesting from our industry or wherever? Well, you know, after... 2023 sort of break-even result for the year. I, I, I wasn't really expecting such a glorious January and February for these emerging trend environments. So uh, um, things are rocketing away and the battleship's um, full guns blazing at the moment, doing very well. And um, so you're very happy with the trending environment at the, at the moment, Niels. And look, I've got to congratulate um, you and Dunn um, because I've, I've I've glimpsed your um, your performance over January and February, and it's pretty stunning. I won't reveal what the level is, but it's very impressive. And a big congratulations to you and the team. They're done. They're done. Well, it's still early days, and as as you know, we we always refrain from talking about specific performance. But um, I, I appreciate the comment, of course. But I think you came across an article that you uh, wanted to talk about, which kind of alludes a little bit to about, you know, 2024 performance uh, for, for these type of strategies. Yes. So it, it was an article I picked up from um, Hedge Nordic, and it was where RPM, Risk and Portfolio Management, um, uh, had their prognosis about what 2024 would bring in terms of trend-following opportunities. And I just noticed that the, the article, I think, was prepared in December, and their their prediction or their outlook for 2024 um, was quite um, sultry, um, you know, based on their economic indicators and uh, the um, the narrative that was occurring at that time. They were anticipating a very weak start to 2024, and you know, I, I just wanted to raise this as, as, as a bit of a critique. Because if there's one thing that a trend follower does is they don't predict. And this is because the, the strategies that we deploy, they're adaptive in nature and they're opportunistic in nature. And they exploit when, when markets change and, and have these significant events. So the whole basis of a, a trend following outlook is not to predict and just capitalize on the market trends when they present themselves with our diversified portfolios. So um, I, 
I tend to think that there's a lesson in this for all of those out there that make predictive stances about what trend following is going to bring in another year's time. I think the safest outlook of all is just to say, I don't know, and to recognise that markets are inherently uncertain and unpredictable in nature, and to pay sort of... um, not necessarily strong heed to um, you know some of the narratives, some of the the economic outlooks, etc., that might make um, market commentary um, that comes from areas outside of the trend following community. And you know, good example, Niels, is your article. I'm sure you're going to bring up about um, Bloomberg's comment on cocoa. A lot of these um, it, these professionals who live outside the trend following world who are predisposed to wanting to predict outcomes, they love to jump into our world and assume that they know what our performance is going to be in a year's time. And I just like to say, well, look, they might not necessarily have the skills and understanding that our approach is non-predictive in nature and just capitalizes on these trends. And really, um, to, to suggest that there is a proposed outlook for trend following is a bit of a stretch uh, when you consider that the nature of our strategies and how they're deployed. What do you think? So I think, first of all, I think you're right in the sense that a lot of people like to predict the outlook for trend following, uh, including potential investors trying to time it, uh, including current investors uh, trying to um, improve a little bit on the on the on the return, uh, which never rarely works. And of course, what I think the article, I haven't read it in detail, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. I think what the article, I think what the, the, the point they're trying to make is that there's some kind of link to the business cycle and the CTA returns. But I am on your side on this. And uh, of course, you could say maybe it's a bit surprising that that it comes from a firm that has been in this in the trend following trenches for decades. So uh, they probably know uh, that, that this is a strategy that is impossible to predict. Like so many other things when it comes to investing, I mean, who knows what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, really. So yes, I mean, if there's one thing I dream of in 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 this um, in, in my job is if, if people would start seeing the value of just having trend following in the portfolio and and seeing the benefits that it brings in instead of trying to look at it as something that they can you know quote unquote just make money on it's not just about making money from the trend allocation it's about what it does to the overall portfolio and the improvement it brings to the overall portfolio so even though we we tend to look at this as a line item that's probably the last thing we should do we should look at the overall portfolio changes and improvements but it is a very, very tall order to try and and change that uh, mentality. Uh, I have to say. Well, you know, in this segment where we talk a little bit about what's been on your radar, I have to shift gear a little bit and report something that um, I thought was kind of quite cute, because it has been a week where everything has been focused on CPI numbers and PPI numbers. They've been front and center on on the news blogs. And people continue, of course, to go back and forth on uh, whether we have too much inflation or whether inflation is under control. So I thought it was very refreshing um, to read in the Wall Street Journal that in order to find out whether we have inflation or not, all we have to do is to look to the tooth fairy. Because the Wall Street Journal reported this week 
that the Tooth Fairy is paying an average of $6.23 per month, or per tooth, I should say, per tooth, up from $5.36 a year earlier. That's a 16% inflation rate. And some kids are getting $100 bills even. So based on that, I would say inflation is pretty real. Yeah, watch out. Watch out for the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. When when your kids were young, Rich, what what would what was the Tooth Fairy paying uh, paying in 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 Australia? You know, a couple of cents, a couple of cents, and uh, <laughs> yeah, an early okay. night. <laughs> okay, okay, that's clearly there was deflation in uh, in in Australia at that time. All right, let's move on to some more serious uh, stuff before we dive into all the topics. From a trend-following uh, performance, as you uh, correctly indicated, trend followers uh, are doing well, uh, recorded good gains so far in um, in February and this week as well. Um, I would say unlike last week, where we saw a lot of sectors contributing from what I, I sense, I think this, uh, this week was more about a few standout markets, uh, frankly, and you can tell me if you agree. I think our Japanese friends, the Topics and the Nikkei, um, continue to do a lot of the groundwork for, for trend followers. I think the um, sustainable downtrends uh, for the gas costs, uh, U.S. gas and 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 Dutch net gas, uh, is certainly also helping the trend-following sector. And also, as a sector as a whole, grains have just heading been heading south for a really long time, and that obviously uh, fits well with the um, positioning. I think that most trend followers will have. But there's also a few markets that took a break, uh, didn't participate this week. I guess most notably is Cocoa. You mentioned there's an article out about Cocoa. We may get to that. Um, but it obviously is taking a, a well-deserved break from a meteoric rise. Um, but of course, also US stock uh, index futures, um, you know, retreated a little bit this week. And of course, uh, to the reverse, you could say the Hang Seng, which has been in a relentless downtrend, got a little bit of a boost this week and rebounded. And of course, that would have hurt uh, short positioning from from trend followers. Um, and then from a sector point of view, I would say the only sector I would think didn't do so well this week was probably metals. Um, don't think that that was faring uh, according to a bigger picture. But in any event, as mentioned, um, it is looking pretty good. My own trend barometer finished at 48. It's still not very bullish, Although I will say, again, it uses shorter-term timeframes to be calculated, uh, but at least it's been climbing. So that that's always a good sign. Uh, these numbers are as of Thursday night. I think yesterday, Friday, was uh, a down day for most CTAs, I would imagine. But as it stands, as of Thursday, the beta 50 um, index is up almost 4% and up a bit more than 5% for the year. Uh, Sokjian Trend up a little bit more than 4% for the month, up 5 and a quarter for the year. Sokjian Trend, a strong month, up 5.5, up 6.7 for the year. And the Short-Term Traders Index up one and a quarter, and now it's in the black for the year, up 31 basis points. So uh, comparing that to the um, traditional markets, MSCI World is up 2.5 for the month, up 3.66 for the year. World government bond index is down one and a quarter ish, and the S and P 500 total return index is up 3.4 percent so far in February, up 5.1 so uh, for the year so far. Enough about that. Um, before we get to the topics, Rich, there was one question that came in uh, from Mark. 
um, which I thought you would be a perfect person to um, give a view on. Mark writes, equities have tremendous upward drift due in part to innovation and value creation by each company. Historically, bull markets last about four times longer than bear markets. Government intervention almost always favors the Wall Street whenever there is trouble, plus trend followers want to capture that uh, right tail skew, whereas returns from shorting a stock is capped at 100%. I understand that trend followers do not try to predict the future and that a crash can be right around the corner, but given the bias upwards in the long term, should trend followers size long and short positions the same? Should they even bother with shorting stocks with such risk-reward? So, what do you think? Well, they're, they're very good points raised. And, you know, if if I was considering trend following on stocks alone, yes, there there's a lot of good points in there um, that, that are valid. Um, you know, I certainly know that um, the regulators do step in in a market crisis with stocks where they might prevent short selling. Um and um, you know a lot of the points he raised are valid, and and the the long bias in stocks is valid as well because there's this natural sort of what they call an absorbing barrier at zero, uh, which means that the upside potential is is potentially infinite, but the downside potential ultimately um, butts its head against the the zero line. But you know there are certain things that can be done to accommodate that. For instance, um, some people have suggested that. Um, as, as you're shorting stocks, you could be um, looking at that absorbing barrier and raising your position size to accommodate a tail event in the short side, recognizing that it's only got a finite duration down to zero. But look, um, because, uh, look, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not a specialist in this area because I don't trade individual stocks. Unlike, say, Jerry, I, I trade indexes. Um, one day um, I might get into individual stocks. So perhaps Jerry's in a better position to respond to a comment like that. But what I'd like to say um, is that equities themselves in my total portfolio represent um, a small portion of the asset classes represented by my portfolio, maybe one-sixth of the, the, the portfolio itself. And I find that having long and short properties is not simply a, a determination based on equities alone. It's about how those long and short properties of equities actually assist other aspects of the portfolio. So I find, for instance, that having short positions on my indexes that I trade with my portfolio actually do give me correlation improvements over my, on my overall portfolio. So it's not just a decision based on performance. It's a decision based on made on other factors that might not necessarily just be due to the the long bias that's in stocks. The the, the short and the long provide more degrees of, of um, correlation um, reduction in your portfolio than purely a long bias um, of equities in your portfolio. So that's probably the thing that would be on my mind is that would I lose those properties if I was long only in my equities? It would be tempting because of the reasons that um, the questioner has said there's very valid reasons, but the reason why I've stood firm and held on to my short positions in indexes is because of the, the overall improvements I tend to find in my overall portfolio by virtue of trading long and short uh, my, my indexes. Well, first of all, I agree completely. Again, it goes back to the same point about why you should include managed futures or trend following in a portfolio. You need to look at, at, at the overall picture, not not specific small line items. 
So I agree with that. Um, I also uh, want to just remind Mark that, yes, um, actually you could say the same about probably most markets that we trade, that if we did a, an al analysis of the long-sided trades and the short-sided trades, the long-sided trades would do better. It doesn't change the fact that markets sometimes take some big uh, hits. Uh, I mean, in the last uh, year, natural gas is down 53%. I mean, that's a nice downtrend. We know the grains are down somewhere between 30 and 35%. That's a nice downtrend. And of course, we know from history that the NASDAQ in the last 20 years or so, a little 20 years plus, was down 87%. So it doesn't mean that uh, that it's going to work all the time, but it just means that sometimes it's really important to have. And as long as we can, as an industry, deliver solid returns, including the shorts, and therefore also provide potentially a bit more profit opportunity when people most need it, because we know a lot of people are long only in their equity book, um, then I think it's fine. And, and we have to be careful uh, with this thing about trying to over-optimize. As soon as we see something in the portfolio we don't like or in a model we don't like, we, it's, it's, it's very tempting to just remove it without, without realizing that since we don't know the future, that could have a devastating effect going forward, even if it looks good in a backtest. So lots of things to consider. But it is a very, very relevant question that Mark raises because sometimes what looks obvious um, may not be the right choice anyways. So, all right, Rich, the time is here. We're going to dive into your uh, topics. And when I said in the in the introduction that this is something we haven't uh, talked about, um, I was kind of surprised when you uh, when you brought it up uh, and saying, yeah, let's talk about this because it's a very relevant question that we are often faced with in our discussions with clients because at the end of the day, a lot of their work is going to look at how individual managers perform vis-a-vis -vis a benchmark. And of course, ideally, they want us they want to find managers who outperform. Uh, the benchmarks. So yes, we're going to be talking about that uh, to begin with. We are going to talk about how a disciplined approach to diversified trend following can lead to surpassing uh, market averages simply through the adoption of a process that favors survival over performance. Um, and that I think are some very important words uh, that you um, uh, that you've put in uh, this description of the topic. Then we'll talk. We'll dive into other topics later on, but let's just kick off with this and, and see where we go. All right, Niels. So here we go. So the question is, why is it so hard for fund managers to exceed their benchmarks? And, and what I'd like to talk about is a, a good example is um, the Spiva reports, which report on the American mutual fund industry. And um, they look at the, the performance of the managers over fairly long-term timeframes, and they see how well they perform against their benchmarks that they're, they're um, responding to. So what you find in the Spiva reports is that about between 75% and up to 90% of managers fail to exceed the benchmarks set by the industry. And a good benchmark, for instance, might be the S&P 500 performance. That's a typical benchmark um, that's used for these fund managers. And a lot of people say to themselves, well, these managers are meant to be skilled managers. Why is it so difficult that they're not exceeding those benchmarks based on their level of skill? What is the reason for, for this underperformance? 
And this is a really important question because in this discussion today, Niels, we're going to actually see how hard it is to achieve those benchmarks and then a process that we can apply to do so. And the first thing you've got to understand when you're looking at these benchmarks, like the S&P 500, or a, a benchmark can effectively be any level of price of any market. We, you know, we could use um, the performance of cocoa as a benchmark. We could use the performance of the S&P 500, whatever. What we're doing there is we're taking a snapshot in time of the collective actions of all of the participants at that point in time that influence price at that point in time. So when we look at the level of a benchmark like the S&P 500, it's, a, it's attributed to two things. One is the capitalization of the companies that are in the index, but also it's the price um, of that the, um, the constituent companies that reside in that index. So when we simplify that, we see that really the state of a market at any point in time is a representation of price at, of that market at any point in time. And that level of price is a result of the collective actions, the buying and selling decisions and the quantum of those decisions at any point in time. And it's an average of all of the collective actions of those participants at that point in time. So... That's a form of average, and that's the average that's set in place with these benchmark indices, the S&P 500, uh, the, the performance of the Nikkei, the performance of the FTSE, all of these benchmarks that these fund managers are trying to do is based on um, a, basically a sequence of snapshots of the collective participation at instants in time. And what we find is that that average that's produced is significantly different to the average that's produced by the collective activities of participants over the course of time. And a way to understand this is think of this analogy. Think of, uh, let's say we put all of our fund managers in a 1,000 kilometer marathon race, a massive marathon race. And they all started at the beginning. We had thousands of managers participating. And when they first started that activity, we had this massive participation of all of those managers. But over the course of time, there'd be irrecoverable events occurring to some of those managers. Some might sprain their ankle. Some might have a heart attack. Some might drop out of the entire race. So as you're progressing over those points of time, the collective participation changes over the course of the marathon. Now, also, the marathon has hills and it has valleys and it's not a constant level playing field for the entire marathon. There are lots of these instances where risk changes over the course of time. We get um, periods of uncertainty as they're going up these narrow tracks. We get uh, periods of ease and predictability when they're going across the large tarmac roads. But over the course of that 1,000-kilometer event, the level of participation changes. And if you took a snapshot at instance in time across that entire 1,000-kilometer race, you would get a map of all of the participant activities of the survivors at each instant in time. Now, what that average forgets is that it is not including the collective impact of traders that have dropped out of the race over the course of the race. 
it's only um, tr- uh, collecting the impact. It's like a it's like a fossilized imprint of a record of survivorship, a record of who has survived. A bit like the fossil record, we know that um, you know we get these instances where we get these fossils preserved at these periods in time, and we make inferences about what the rest of the population were doing at that period of time based on that that fossilized imprint. But that's exactly what a benchmark is. It's a fossilized imprint of the collective participation that resides at that instant in time to produce that average or that price level for that particular benchmark. And when we compare that to all of the participants over the entire race or over the entire course of time, we see that the average reflected by the market snapshot is far different to the average of all of the participants' activities over that course of time. And what we find is the average significantly differs from the average of that snapshot in time. And by far the majority of the averages over the course of time um, are less or lower than the averages at the instant in time because they include the impact of people that are dropping out of the races as or the the um, the participants that are dropping out of the market when they meet risk of ruin when they have these irrecoverable events in their their trading where um, they suddenly have such a calamitous drawdown that it is very difficult to recover from so the averages over the course of time is a much better realistic way to assess performance of managers as opposed to the averages at an instant in time, because that only gives you an account of who has survived at those periods in time. So there is a particular average we can use that is a far better average to look at how averages change over a time series. And that's a geometric average. And something such as the compound annual growth rate is such a geometric average. It takes into account the path of returns over the course of time and just doesn't look at an average at a snapshot in time. So what what we're actually talking about, Niels, and we always never like discussing this concept, but it's about ergodicity again, Niels, and it's just reflective of the fact that financial markets are non-ergodic in nature. So what that means is that the, the experience of um, market averages at a point in time is different to the experience of an individual over the course of time. And because of this disparity between uh, the time-based average and what we call the spatial state of a system at any point in time, because of this massive discrepancy, this is why we find there is such levels of underperformance in the SPIVA reports and in any process which tries to achieve above benchmark returns, this is because they fail to include the returns of those that have dropped out of the race, those who have faced risk of ruin, those participants who are no longer there to participate in future earnings. Now, this is the big thing. The reason why um, compound annual growth rate is such an important principle to understand is that over the long term, Uh, What defines whether a manager stays in or out of that particular uh, index is based on um, the risk events that they've experienced along the path of their journey. 
And what we find is that the vast number, in our retail trading world, there's a statistic that's thrown around by many brokers that say that 90% of traders fail and 10% of traders survive. That's a very important statistic to us because what we do is we then compare that to these industry averages and these benchmarks and we can see, ah, the reason why the vast number of participants don't achieve those averages is they're not around any longer to participate in the fruits of the market. So this is where compounding is such an important principle, but it's a principle that you must observe the impact of the path or the performance of the returns over the time series. Because if you approach this game like a high-risk gambler with um, searching for the, the highest opportunities or the highest rewards or chase returns, you're typically being exposed to high-risk situations. Now, we all know that there's a relationship between risk and reward. If you want greater reward, you've got to suffer more risk in your search for reward. So those people that are chasing returns or going or, or selecting the best alternative in their backtest from all available alternatives, what they're actually doing is they're plotting themselves in the high risk end of the spectrum that whilst there might be a high reward there, there is also a very significant chance they're going to suffer an irrecoverable loss that's going to prevent them from then achieving any future returns on the future. So when a, a trend follower talks about their performance, they're not looking at the performance over an individual event or an individual trade. What they're looking at is their performance over thousands of trades because a priority to them is survival. So survival is the most important aspect and must achieve preeminence or must be ranked higher than performance because if you are looking for, for performance you typically enter the land of leverage and you typically enter the land of searching for the highest return with the highest risk now compounded with leverage that creates a toxic environment where if you do have a risk event it can be cataclysmic your ability to secure future returns. And if you can't secure future returns, you will never be the beneficiary of compounding. And when we talk about the compound annual growth rate, what we're talking about is an average that looks at the path of the returns and looks at its geometric properties over the course of time to offer the greatest potential for compounded wealth over the long term. And what you find is that that is a compromise between risk and return. It's not going for the highest return or the return with the greatest leverage. It's looking, taking risk management seriously and looking at the impacts of individual risk events uh, and their ability to cripple you from your ability to participate in those future events. And it's exactly that the way we do this in our trend following world is the adage cut losses short, and let profits run. What we are doing with this particular process is that statement, cutting losses short and letting profits run, is actually creating a geometry over the course of time that um, is, is favourable to compounded wealth over the comp course of time. Because what we're saying is we will never let losses become adverse material events that knock us out of the game or 
corp- uh, take us to risk of ruin. They'll only ever be small hits in our steady pursuit of this um, slight edge that we have in the market that over thousands and thousands of trades is going to compound. Because whilst we might be making an immediate sacrifice in terms of searching for the highest performance or um, applying the greatest leverage to get that performance, we know that we're going to be rewarded by compounding, which really is uh, uh, the, the, the fifth wonder of the world. It is a miracle because if you're able to have a slight edge in this market over thousands and thousands and thousands of contingent events where none of those events cripple you, and over the course of time of those thousands of events, you have a slight positive sloping upward trajectory, the compounding impact at the end of that exercise makes up all of the joy that you've missed out on by sacrificing chasing the highest returns or by applying excessive leverage. So this is a game that you apply with a process as opposed to um, this return chasing phenomenon or going for the highest returns. And trend following is one of the very rare approaches that has this process. Um, basically, it is, it's this golden rule that survival comes at the priority of performance. To be in the game for the long term, we must diversify widely, apply small bets to any position so no individual event is going to cripple us and search for uncorrelated return streams in our portfolio that mitigate that adverse risk of our portfolio, but be in a position to exploit opportunities with our baseball bats where we hit for the covers in these positive environments of outliers where we can leverage with our strategies off the the potential of these outliers to lift us um, skyward and give us this massive compound bit potential over the long term. And a lot of people talk about um, the smoothness of returns and the the creation of the smoothest trajectory of a portfolio being a straight line, starting from if you plot that on the chart, you have a a straight line coming up from the the axis um, at a, a certain level of ascent. They will say that that is the best geometry to achieve compounded wealth. But there is one better geometry above that. That's where that straight line, you start having these points in time across that straight line where you get these big step-ups in that trajectory. So what you'll find is that the traditional measures applied to risk management, such as Sharp, will say to you, ah, your performance has deteriorated because your Sharp has now declined, but it's, it's forgotten to take into account the, the beneficial geometry of the uplift, and this is where alternative measures that look at extreme events. So the Ma ratio looks at extreme events. And this is because a trend follower is not looking at the most frequent occurrence or the the median event in the distribution of returns. It's looking for the extreme events because that's where it sees its opportunity. By cutting losses short, they stunt the opportunities of their portfolios ever experiencing left tail events but they leave themselves open to significant positive skew in being able to embrace opportunities with these outliers. And this creates a stepped up profile that is over the long term, a superior geometry than what a straight line can achieve. So this is where 
trend following achieves two things. One is a superior geometric return, which means that uh, the, the wealth generating potential of trend following is actually higher than a lot of alternative investment practices. And what these alternative investment practices do is they must necessarily sacrifice the uplift or the returns generated by their portfolio to smooth their portfolio. And that compromises their long-term geometric growth because of the fact that they've diluted their uplift potential. They might have achieved a very smooth ride, but they've compromised that uplift potential. Ideally, a trend follower, a diversified systematic trend follower, is looking at the best of both worlds. It's looking at the worlds where with our uncorrelated portfolios, we're trying to achieve um, uh, minimize adversity over the, over the course of the path of returns, but not sacrifice the uplift potential, the lifting power of that portfolio over time. So uh, there is a secret, Niels, in that when we talked about these um, fund managers trying to achieve these industry benchmarks, and most of them fail, we find a very interesting thing in trend-following land. Because as you and I know, uh, we prepare the Top Traders Unplugged trend-following index. And that Top Traders Unplugged trend-following index comprises 57 managers with a long-term track record of greater than 15 years. Now, when we compare the index that's produced from that particular composition against, say, the SG Trend Index, which is comprised of the 10 biggest trend-following funds from Societe Generale, and when we compare the TTU Trend-Following Index against the S&P 500, we find that in both instances, the TTU Trend-Following Index exceeds the returns of the SG trend and the S&P 500 index and with lower drawdowns. Now, this is where it's exceeding the benchmarks by choosing fund managers from the trend-following groupies who've had a long-term track record. Why is this? Well, it's exactly the conversation we've been having, Niels. The, the ones that have survived the 15-year-plus track record They've faced a variety of different regimes. They've survived, and the track record is testament to their survival. It's not necessarily saying big is better because the big um, trend-following funds, the way the index is comprised from them is you'll find that um, as, as we do the SG trend index each year, participants drop in and drop out of that index quite regularly. But what we find with the TTU trend following index, because it's comprising these trend followers with a long-term track record, it's very stable. And we don't find that they're dropping in and out of the index. They're always present unless, of course, they retire from the industry. But that's not necessarily like Bill Dreis retiring from the industry at, at a high watermark. They're not retiring when they're there's, there's no risk of ruin in that group of uh, 15 years track record trend followers. So what we're finding is that because they've been alive for so long, the average that they're achieving includes the geometric properties of compounding, which lifts them above the market average when you're taking a static snapshot at a point in time. And it's a very interesting effect. 
And this therefore comes to the central argument, Niels, and, and why you and I created this, this TTU trend following index is because we recognize that the ultimate risk metric to apply to assess the performance of a, a fund manager is the validated track record. This actually gives a, a real definitive reason. They have survived, they have benefited from compounding, that compounded wealth has grown them their their levels of average above the market average. And that's why we see these performance returns um, playing out um, as they do. So that's enough for the moment. What do you think? No, no. I mean, a great explanation, very important point. Um, again, of course, uh, what you're really saying is that for investors who sit and analyze and try to put together a portfolio of, of managers, they will often for human reasons, of course, um, focus on on the wrong thing, namely creating something that is as stable as possible. So it's almost like a double whammy. I mean, trend following in itself is difficult. We know that. Buying high, selling lows, it goes against every bone in your body uh, that says you should buy low and sell high. Um, yet buying high and selling higher and so on and so forth actually is uh, something that works and has worked for many decades. So that in itself, the underlying strategy is is um, is hard to do uh, for, for many um, uh, people from just human biases and all of that. And then on the next level, when you then want to put together a portfolio of it, you meet the same challenge that everything in your body says, oh, I should put together these three managers because it looks super stable. But what you're saying is, no, actually, um, it's a different criteria. Now, as, as you rightly put, we chose 15 years as a, as a, as a filter uh, in, in our index. Um, of course, that doesn't bode too well for emerging managers. No. Um, and, 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 and it's not, it's not the, and, and, what, and this is another thing that's very interesting uh, is that, of course, that it's a little bit like all these different kind of narratives that you see, right? That the newest uh, shiny thing is always the greatest and all the things that have been around for 20 years, it's old fashioned, it's out of, you know. And 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 there has been narrative in our industry suggesting that new evolving managers are the best and they produce better performance and so on and so forth. Again, as as someone very kindly wrote to me during the uh, during the week, saying, you know, a classic comment I always come up with is just to say, I don't see it in the data, <laughs> and this would be the same. I don't see it in the data. So I think you touch on some really important points, and and I hope people will maybe I, listen I'm to old it school a couple of times. I believe that track record should be rewarded. In other words, you know. Those that have had experience in the game, you know, if, for instance, I was interviewing people for jobs or that, I'd be looking at those with experience, those that have had been through the school of hard knocks. And, and look, I know that um, our particular index does exclude the emerging managers, but really they've got a job to do. They've got a job to prove that they, they can survive over the harshest elements, that they haven't necessarily experienced before we can commend them on their abilities. It's there's got to be proof of the pudding, as far as you know. My my viewpoint is, and um, and I suppose that's a, that's an old school way of looking at. But sometimes old school methods, you know, there's a bit of wisdom in there, and there's a reason um, for for the the choice of managers based on their track record. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things that that's really important there because 
on one side, we say that you can't predict anything. At the same time, what what and 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 of course, you can't backtest experience that you can't do that. But what 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 we're really saying is to some extent that no, you, it that's true. You can't predict anything, but we put value on people who've been around long enough to know, or, or the, at least we feel we know that they are unlikely, a little bit like human behavior. If there's one thing that doesn't change, is human behavior. So that's one prediction we can almost make with 100% certainty, which is, of course, also why trend following continues to work. But the next level is to say, well, we we, we feel that, that managers who've been around for a long time, we feel that they are unlikely to panic and do something strange or weird because of a short-term situation. And that's really what we are, quote-unquote, predicting. And that's what we put value to by putting a filter on saying, we only want to really consider managers that have been around for um, a fair amount of time. Um, Look, so what, I think that's how we kind of I'd, combine I'd, those things. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to talk about is that, that this is being better. And, you know, when we look at um, statements made in the media about um, the best performing hedge fund in the world being, um, um, you know, uh, oh, oh, Citadel. But well, no, I was thinking fund, of um, I was thinking of uh, the fund, you know. Um, oh, um, yeah, yeah, Te- Renaissance Technologies. Yeah, well, no, I was thinking of no. uh, I was thinking of Ray Dalio, Bridgewater and Associates. Oh, Bridgewater. Okay. So okay. you know, they talk about the world class returns delivered by Bridgewater and Associates, and and of course, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is presented in here, etc. But um, I always wonder about that because when I compare their long-term track records against the best in our industry of trend following, I find that they're not nearly as good. Now, this is this is when I'm plotting them over the last 24, 30 years, I'm finding that we're outperforming them. So how are they getting this recognition um, and how are they getting these awards and commendations? And and big being better tends to often be more of a marketing ploy as opposed to a, a valid statement regarding their track records. So to me, track record's very important. And and going back to the, the TTU trend following index, which comprises these 57 um, trend following managers with a 15 plus track record, I'm just going to um, tell you in figures how it outperforms SG Trend. We're all familiar with SG Trend, which is the top 10 trend following managers managed by Society General. So over the last 24 years, starting with $1,000, if you invested theoretically in the TTU trend following index, you'd now have $6,100 and you'd have experienced a maximum drawdown over that entire 24-year period of 17%. That's from $1,000 to $6,100. If you'd invested $1,000 in the SG trend index over 24 years, you'd now have $3,750 with a maximum drawdown of 21% over the 24 years. So what we're achieving in raw terms is double the impact by just selecting participants in that index that have that validated long-term track record. And that's where this impact of compounding is lifting the average well above the average of the, the 10 biggest funds. And in terms of, as you know, Leo's always like talking about complex adaptive systems. And 
when you get a big complex adaptive system, it doesn't necessarily mean it's more robust. It actually tends to mean it's more fragile. So as organizations and as cities get bigger and bigger, let's take New York City, let's take Tokyo, let's take these major cities as an example of things that get very big. You find that the relationships inside that city become very dependent on a few very critical pieces of infrastructure. So New York City, Tokyo, they are so heavily dependent on water availability and electricity and free transport networks going through the entire network that if there is a disruption to any of those pieces of critical infrastructure, suddenly the system is seen as incredibly fragile and completely collapses. Also, you get massive buildup of inefficiencies in things that get very big. So a much more preferable measure to me is size to me does not cut it. You know, if I look at the composition of the S&P 500 and what moves the needle of the S&P 500, it's because of the capitalised value of the, to the, the FANG stocks that we're getting almost all the attention being addressed on those stocks, which is a size thing. It's not necessarily that they are the best trenders because there are trenders in the S&P 500 that are not represented up in the FANG stocks that offer great trending opportunities. But because they're not the biggest, no one ever focuses on them. No one ever sees them. So this big is better in terms of complex adaptive systems. We see that, well, with, with um, greater and greater complexity, it's a bit like our trading models. If we increase the complexity of our trading models, they become more and more precise, more and more precise. And what that precision does is it builds fragility and the inability to deal with events that haven't been recorded in their history. So if you place them in a different um, environment than what is experienced historically, where those systems have evolved and adapted and grown big, they become incredibly fragile. And you see how, how they can totally self-destruct in systems that are foreign to them or events that have never occurred before. We see this all the time in these complex adaptive systems. And this is no different to this analogy of focusing on big is better. It's a trap that actually encourages us to select the most fragile or the most over-optimized or the most precise um, system, which lacks the ability to absorb impacts, lacks the ability to deal with stress, lacks the ability to deal with tail events, because those things are crippling to those complex systems that that have predominantly evolved to deal with um, the historical regime and where they've evolved from and haven't been sort of evolved to deal with the fat-tailed events or the, the events they've never seen in the past dealing with them. So I just thought that's an important thing to bring up in relation to big is not necessarily better, in my opinion, a far better um, example of what is the most robust strategy? What is the one that has the greatest chance of navigating uncertainty in the future? Track record, to me, speaks much more highly than big. So in addition to saying, if I hear you correctly, which I'm sure we all, we all do, big is not better, but what you're also saying is that new is not better. Yeah. Um, and actually old and robust 
Um, so essentially what, what you're saying is that what you should look for is a manager that's been around for five decades, uh, but is but doesn't have $10 billion under management. Um, and all I would say is I can certainly think of one. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have still maybe another 10 minutes, uh, Rich, but we had so many topics we could uh, go with. Um, first of all, let me just say, before I forget, if people are listening to us today saying, what on earth is this TTU trend following index? Where do I find it? You should just go to the to the Top Traders and Blog website and then read the uh, monthly report that Rich and I produce. Uh, it's there. It always describes um, uh, the, the the background for these things that we publish. And of course, the next one coming out soon is an interesting one because that is also where we reveal who has made it in the 2024 lineup uh, of one of the indices that we have created based on the serenity ratio, uh, which is another uh, interesting uh, little tool. So, um, yes. That's just wanted to throw that in. Um, where do you want to go next, Rich? If we, if we only have around sort of ten minutes. All right. Well, look, we've only got ten minutes left, but I, I thought I'd, I'd like to focus on system diversification because most of the discussions we hear is usually centered around market diversification. But system diversification, to me, is a very very important principle for a trend follower to consider. Um, a lot of trend followers don't really employ significant system diversification, but I'd like to just highlight some of the benefits you achieve through system diversification and what it achieves in terms of overall performance and your ability to capitalise on uncertainty. Um, these are things that um, I think are very important and interesting to understand from the perspective of system diversification. So when I'm talking about system diversification here, I want you to imagine the alternative. One is having one system applied to one market or having 10 different trend-following systems applied to one market. So when you're comparing and contrasting what I'm talking about, think of having a 100% allocation of your bet in one system to one market or having a 10% allocation to each of your trend-following systems in your ensemble of trend-following systems applied to a single market. So just by understanding that analogy, you can see that when you apply one trend-following system to one market, you get one return stream resulting from that. But when you apply 10 different trend-following systems to a single market, you get 10 return streams. And those 10 return streams are not all the same shape. They offer correlation offsets, which as a composite, as an ensemble, reduces the overall volatility than you would have otherwise got with your one system applied to your single market. So the principle here we're working on is the fact that when we use an ensemble of trend-following systems, what we're talking about is we are trying to enforce a degree of uncorrelated properties into each system so that as an ensemble, they're not all the same. So they might have a different entry, they might have a different exit, they might have a different stop mechanism and, and distance away from the entry, and they may, might have a different trailing exit mechanism. The idea being that you want them to be uniquely configured so as an ensemble 
they break down the correlation properties as an ensemble together. So if, if we can imagine that, so imagine we are applying an ensemble of models to a single market. One of the things is that provided you've got an edge in each of those individual trend-following mo models, only a weak edge, but in 10 uniquely configured different trend-following models, you'll not only find correlation benefits offering um, uh, less volatility over that ensemble arrangement than what you'd achieve by applying a single model, but also you apply a degree, so there is no um, what I call um, hindsight bias um, in the selection of that ensemble. What I mean is that when people typically adopt one trend-following system to a single market, that choice has usually been made from their assessment of a backtest, and they've usually chosen that particular model that has performed best over that backtest. So that means if that backtest, the history, the regimes that existed on that backtest are exactly the same in the future, that single model will be overfit and perfectly able to accommodate that future property. However, if the future is different to the past, you'll find that it is overfit to the past and underfit for the future, and you'll find that there is a degree of selection bias by using that principle of selecting from the best from alternatives. But when you're applying an ensemble and you are making sure that each of the individual uh, members of that ensemble are different in nature, and you are reducing the selection bias because you're choosing 10 possible different uniquely constructed trend-following systems for that single market. So you are reducing the, the curve-fit nature of that ensemble to the historic properties of that market, and you're giving yourself ultimate loose pants for the future because an ensemble of trend-following models has a far greater ability of capturing a much more diverse array of future possible trends than the single system. So what we find when we apply an ensemble of models to a single market is that it also improves our ability to capture outliers. Because if you can imagine the ability uh, uh, to get outliers in our distribution of trade returns is a combination of two factors. One is, does the market itself offer these trends of material significance and do the systems and the system design and architecture of our systems have the capacity to extract that opportunity from those trending environments? So there are two competing pressures here that are responsible for producing our outliers in our trade distribution, the system design and the market's ability to offer outliers. When you combine those two together and in a successful way, you can exploit these opportunities. So with an ensemble of trend-following models, you've got a far greater ability to exploit these opportunities because a single system design, when applied in a fairly chaotic environment, like out in the tail regions where we're getting these huge material trends in the market, 
because of the particular design properties, it can be whipsawed out of that trend or prevented from participating in that trend through a poor entry signal. There's numerous design factors that can impede our ability to capture that trend. And if we're putting all of our reliance on one system, that is far worse than putting our reliance in 10 possible trend-following systems that have all been rigorously back-tested over the past, are, are universally applicable to all of these markets. So what you find then is that you are significantly reducing the, the curve-fit nature of your response, you're capturing outliers, and you're improving the correlation properties, which gives me so many advantages to talk about in terms of system diversification. I'm just thinking, have I, have, what, what have I missed? Ah, the other thing I've missed is that what I find when we apply an ensemble of trend-following models to a single market, let's say we're actually applying an ensemble of trend-following markets uh, uh, systems to two highly correlated markets like Brent oil and crude oil. Those two markets um, are correlated in terms of their market. They move in the same way. But when you apply an ensemble of trend-following models to both of those markets, the same ensemble you'll find that small variations in your system design is sufficient for you to get outliers in one distribution and not in the other. So this is because the system design and the architecture is having a big role in deciding what are gonna be outliers in your trade distribution. I told you about the two effects, the market trends and the system design. When you've got these various array or an ensemble of trend-following systems placed into the market, you'll find that it actually um, deconstructs or it, or it decreases the level of market correlation uh, in terms of your trade results between two highly correlated markets. So that means I can trade highly correlated markets with a degree of confidence with an ensemble, which I can't achieve if I'm tra trading those two highly correlated markets with a single trend-following model. So what this actually means is that when you apply uh, system ensembles to different markets, it allows you to expand your market diversification because you can include some fairly highly correlated markets now in that new portfolio that's now having an ensemble applied to it. So in that process, you achieve correlation benefits, you maximize your ability to capture outliers, and the 10% allocation to each of those system ensembles is naturally decreasing your bet size for that single market, as opposed to 100% allocation to that. So it's achieving all of these golden rules of our trend-following philosophy. And the last thing I want to say is that when you trade an ensemble of trend-following models to a single market, you'll find that they do not all commit at the same point in a trend. There is a staggered implementation of those trend-following models as they've all got different entries, different exits, different stops, different trailing stops. And you'll find that when markets are generally non-trending in nature, only one or maybe very few of your trend-following models are ever active. All the rest are inactive. However, when markets start to trend, we'll get a staggered implementation of one trend-following model then a bit later, another trend-following model, another trend-following model. So as the trend materially grows in extent and duration, you'll find that there is a progressive increase of capital commitment along that trend. 
It's a bit like the principle of pyramiding, but it's different because we're uniquely designing all of these ensembles. But what you'll see is that we are fully exploiting the opportunities of, of these outliers with these baseball bats with this increasing commitment through our trend-following models as the trends get more significant and more materially enduring in nature. So, look, I'm a big fan of system ensembles. Um, market um, diversification is a fantastic feature, but then there's another great feature as well. You can add into the mix system diversification. I think it's wonderful for a trend follower to at least consider it and look at some of these benefits um, you achieve from that process. Yes, I mean, I uh, I don't disagree with you at all. It it makes makes logical sense. However, uh, from a practical uh, experience, I would say that most managers that I've I mean, I know it works wonderful for you. Uh, first of all, from where I sit, I see that most longer term managers tend to have fewer systems but many time frames so their commitment levels are not built up by having many different models engaging but actually just the longer the trend runs the more commitment they get from having different time frames so uh, so uh, that's but on the shorter term side i actually think that that's where you see more uh, managers going for system diversification um to trade certain specific setups, et cetera, et cetera. So what my I'm last actually question doing, Niels, is I'm actually, I totally agree with you there, but when I'm talking about system diversification, it is actually umbrellaing different timeframes. So, so what I mean is they've got different holding periods and, you know, some systems are short-term in nature, some are medium-term, some are long-term in nature. So I totally agree with yeah. you. And uh, No, I, I, just, yeah. I just wanted to ask you, sort of as, as a general question, for longer-term managers... Um, since there are more long-term trend followers that are short-term, can you even rate uh, having multiple timeframes versus multiple systems? So to speak, I mean, it's really hard. So when when I, I hear a lot of people talking about multiple timeframes, they're talking about you know trading on the thirty-minute bar, trading on the one-hour bar, trading on the the daily bar, trading on the weekly. No, bar. I mean, I don't I, mean that. I mean I duration, duration of hold. Right. So in duration of hold, but I also mean actually. Let's forget about all that short-term yep, yep. thing. I don't think it really works as well as long-term trend yeah, following. Yeah, agreed. So, I, no, I mean by, you know, whether you trade 50 days, 60 days, 70 days, 200 days, whatever. That's that's the kind of time frame I'm yep. thinking. Yeah, well, the, what I find, it, you know how I conduct this workflow process, Niels, which what I do is I don't make any assumptions about the parameters I use for my trend-following models, and I let the data uh, of my workflow process work out what is the optimal parameters now, when so that means that potentially, uh, if the the market data suggested that short term time time frames on holds for my models was the best way to go, it's going to plonk out those results to say that's the optimal one universally across my entire portfolio. But it doesn't do that. The workflow process I find tends to settle on what I call medium to long term models in my speak. So anything up to two weeks I regard as short term. Anything from two weeks up to a year of hold, I regard as medium term. Anything beyond that is long term. And what I find is that the process naturally plots me in the medium to long term way with these different trend following models. But some of them are distinctly shorter term than others. One, some might have a hold of you know three months, four months. Others might have a hold of one year. Others might have a hold of three years. So what I find, let's say, for example, 
I'm going on a very strong trend. And I've got full commitment of my trading models because the trend has been an exponential trend and all of my models have been engaged. When that trend turns, uh, we actually might find of my collection of ensemble of models, some of those trends being whipped out and they're now going short while the rest of the models are going long. So what I'm finding is an ensemble, I'm almost getting a degree of hedging when the trend turns, which is actually improving my performance and not leaving so much profit on the table as if I traded one system waiting for that trend to turn back to my trailing stop. It could be awful. I could be lose a lot of that unrealized profit. But the nature of how these ensembles work together and their, their co-integration and correlation properties, etc., tends to really work well as a composite. Dealing with all of these factors that is a real nightmare for us. So even if you do like loose pants, it does sound like you wear a belt with those loose pants. Yeah, I've got a belt on. I've got a belt on, but I do have <laughs> loose pants. But yeah, each, each of right. my models has a belt, but collectively they're the loosest pants of all. Fair enough. Uh, before we leave uh, our conversation today, uh, Rich, I, I just did, I just wanted to mention this uh, uh, article in the Financial Times. Don't even know who wrote it, but the headline, of course, was sensational. And um, the point of the article was something along the lines that, uh, you know, hedge funds, I'll just read the first few lines, hedge funds have piled into cocoa, uh, the cocoa market since the end of last year, so end of 2023, Ooh. exacerbating <laughs> a record-breaking surge in price sparked by poor harvest in West Africa. And they later on talk about, you know, speculated, speculative traders, and then they say here, the wager which has earned bumper profits for trend-following hedge funds in 2024. So clearly they're talking about you and I and all our friends oh, in yeah. the trend-following space. And I just want to point out, it's completely misleading because most trend followers didn't get long cocoa at the end of 2023. They got long cocoa at the beginning of 2023. So just wanted to point it out uh, that don't, believe everything you write uh, you read in in the press when it comes to trend following they're usually misinformed about how this strategy really works yeah exactly um, all right good stuff um lot lot of stuff we covered today rich i appreciate uh all of your efforts uh in um, preparing that and if you like these conversations i should always mention um do, do us a favor head over to uh to uh, Apple or Spotify, wherever you hear uh, or listen to your your podcast, and leave us a rating and review, and perhaps even more importantly, share these uh, episodes with some of your friends, uh, colleagues, um, because we do want to help more people see the uh, the benefit of some of these concepts um, that we talk about. All right, uh, next week I'm joined by another trend-following expert, Nick Balters from Goldman Sachs. Um, so if you want him to tackle some questions. Send them as usual to info at toptradersonplot.com. I'm sure it's going to be a super insightful conversation. He normally uh, dives deep into some research papers that he finds. So uh, I'm excited about the upcoming conversation. As also, as mentioned before, make sure you go and check out the blog post on the on the Top Traders website and look out for the next uh, installment, the next uh, Trend Following Monthly Report coming out very soon, uh, where we will reveal the lineup for next year based on a certain uh, metric. But of course, we will also talk about other selections and of course the TTU trend following index that we've been talking about today. 
how it is doing um, at the moment. So from Rich and me, thank you ever so much for listening and uh, coming back every week. We look forward to being back with you next week. And of course, in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.